Welcome to the third of our five golden podcast rings, Pharma Forum's festive series of pharma industry and healthcare sector podcasts for listening to during the holiday period. Providing pause for consideration here is a conversation with Mark Andrews, Investment Director of Life Sciences Funds at British Patient Capital. Exploring the differences between UK and US life sciences investment, from startups to later stage companies, we discuss BCP's work in the space as well as the topic generally. It's certainly something of auditory worth as we move into 2024, providing insights, learnings and also considerations for the year ahead. At the very least, I hope the conversation provides informative pause in amongst the seasonal celebrations. As ever, thank you for listening. This is web editor Nicole Raleigh, and today I have with me Mark Andrews, Investment Director of Life Sciences Funds at British Patient Capital. Our conversation will be focused on investment in life sciences, a vitally hot topic at the moment, so it should make for an interesting discussion. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Good afternoon. Afternoon. Now, British Patient Capital, it's one of the UK's largest domestic investors into UK venture and venture growth. With more than £3 billion of assets under management, its mission is to enable long-term investment in innovative UK companies. Indeed, the company itself has committed over £150 million to five UK life sciences-focused venture capital funds as part of its core programme, making it one of the most active funds of fund investors in the sector. But before we really sink our teeth into the financials, Mark, I was wondering if you could tell me, tell our listeners a little bit more about you, about your journey to today and how it is that you found yourself where you are now. I mean, you've got previous experience in academic medical research in clinical oncology and radiotherapeutics, I believe. Is that right? Amongst other spaces, yes. Um, happy to to tell you a little bit about that, but tell me if I start taking up too much time. So as you as you mentioned, I started in clinical oncology um, in Cambridge in the laboratory for molecular biology, and then I was moving around like most academics do, um, depending on where the funding for your work comes from. And after a few years of that, I found myself in a research institute actually in central Germany. So I'd actually gone abroad with the work and I was considering where I would go with my career from there. And I was actually thinking about uh, going into some kind of life science startup company. As with most research institutes, particularly in Germany, there tends to be a business park that sprouts up either across the road or close by. Uh, and so I started talking to some of my friends that were working in, in, in those companies. And, and I happened to come across what for an academic is the, the weird and wonderful world of, of, of venture capital. Um, I'd never heard of it before, you know. I was too busy working in the labs. Uh, and uh, it just so happened by serendipity that there was a fund that was working in the town in Germany that I was working in, um, investing in life sciences. They had much more of an optical technologies background. For so, so for the scientists out there, they came out of the Carl Zeiss story. So those are the people that make uh, all of the, you know, a lot of the microscopes and lenses and kind of things that you may may have come across in in the, the day to day job. And so they were looking for people that could understand the life sciences. Uh, and so that was that was my route to make a, a change from academia into life science VC. I obviously couldn't read a balance sheet when I first started. I was an academic after all, so there was a lot of 
quick learning that needed to be done, mixture of on-the-job learning and training. Uh, and then for the next 15 years, I worked for two different fund management companies. The first was based, as I mentioned, in Germany. The second was based on the shores of Lake Geneva. Um, however, they did open office up an office in London, and I moved over to London to head that office at that time. So after about 15 years of being an investor myself, um, you know, learning from from scratch, how to run the investment process, how to manage the companies afterwards, how to exit them, how to be on a board of directors, how to act. In that role, um, I then made a, another change when I was back in London into corporate advisory work, initially in, in um, uh, mergers and acquisitions, so in the deal-making end of, of what, what we would have, I would have done as, a, uh, as an investor. And then I moved to a, a more boutique life science uh, corporate advisory where not only M&A was the, the focus of what I was doing, but also um, things like licensing deals, uh, strategy, and particularly trying to help younger life science companies raise money. So that was the kind of a red line that went through what I was doing after I left, left academia. And then that then opened, the opportunity opened up for me to potentially come and, and join BPC. And that's what I did almost two years ago now. And here we are today. Gosh, yeah. yes, a definite learning of the ropes and the deeper details process. So if we take all that into consideration, bring it back to the UK life sciences and BPC. British Patient Capital's UK Life Sciences Investment Programme, or LSIP, was set up to address the later stage equity finance gap faced by high potential UK life sciences companies. And through that, through LSIP, uh, BPC makes cornerstone commitments to later stage life sciences venture growth funds with a strong UK focus, typically investing between 50 million and 100 million in each successful fund. So I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that and then we're going to sort of compare and contrast with the US setting. So there's a lot more to what we do for life sciences companies here at BPC other than LSIP as we call it. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that That's the you know the growth end of, of what we do. We do have the core program as well which has a commitment, a soft commitment within it to do a certain number of, of or a certain amount of, of life science fund manager deals. And so we are actively investing out of that uh, as well. In fact, I think most of the, the if not all of the, the funds that you mentioned earlier on, actually come out of the core program. So that is able to go from, shall we say, what we would call venture, which is the usual, sometimes referred to as early stage life science venture, which is really late preclinic, early clinical work, but can also go up into the growth phases, but um, it generally doesn't invest quite the size of, of checks that the LSIP does. Now, LSIP is a much smaller fund, um, and it's actually really, I would say it's, um, it's a market shaping program rather than um, a cornerstone. I think market shaping hits it more. That does tend to mean that often we do cornerstone. So there is an overlap between the two. But what we're trying to do there is to try and seed the um, ecosystem in the UK with a number of investors that would then be able to help support life sciences companies as they go through their growth, um, you know, from the earlier companies into what would be considered the later stages or growth phases or scale up is probably a better word, um, which is uh, phase two trials in, in if you use the 
the drug development uh, kind of pathway onwards. So that's that's the actual target of 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 LSIP is is that those those later stages. But there are you know there are gaps around the the rest of the market for life sciences as well. I remember I sound like a grandfather here, but apologies for that. Uh, <laughs> I, I remember back when I started, there were a lot more life science venture fund managers, both in the UK and also in continental Europe as well. And then there have been certain events which have led to a reduction in the number of those investment teams being around. There has been, shall we say, I can remember off the back of the tech bubble that came in the early 2000s, everybody started investing in life sciences. And I think there was also there an element of over-promising and under-delivering so that when the financial crisis around 2008-2009 came along and there was a crash there, a lot of investors got their fingers burnt and therefore there was a, an aversion to, to investing in the sector, which the sector has been fighting, particularly in Europe and, and, and the UK, not so much in the US, has been fighting to come back from. And, and there are still you know, far fewer investors around. And that's what we're trying to do is trying to not only maintain the ones that are there at the moment, but trying to grow the number so that there is a selection of investors. This is one of the things I noted um, when I was in corporate advisory work that I could almost count on two hands the number of funds that I could approach uh, for a UK-based company, um, and some of those were not UK-based. Uh, so it's it's around trying to grow that ecosystem across the growth phases of life sciences with LSIP specifically concentrating on that later stage where there is a almost complete absence at the moment. Does thank that answer you. your question? or It really does. Yes, I was just about to say thank you for that. Um, I do want to now look at that comparative point with the US that sort of came into your response there as well. As you say, the UK, you know, it's home to world-class scientific research. It's got high potential for life sciences companies. Mm -hmm. um, it's an important sector for UK venture capital investment. And despite all that... UK biotechs are raising significantly less funding than their US counterparts, often reliant on overseas investors for growth funding. For example, in 2022, UK biotechs raised £1.8 billion or $2 billion in funding, while the US biotechs raised an astounding $51 billion. So tell us more about that. Tell us what can be done and why this is happening, perhaps. Okay, so... As with any complex picture like that, there, there is no one the one clear answer to that. I think mm -hmm. I've touched on on one of the reasons why that's been of a particular problem over the last decade or so in the yeah. in, in not only UK but I've, I, I tend to bring Europe as in, into a similar basket. Although I would argue we're probably somewhere between Europe and the UK and the US um, is is about how how people uh, yeah got their got their fingers burnt and have been a little bit reticent to to re-enter the market. The one thing I would say is that, you know, there are there are many ways to look at the, you know, the differences between the US and the UK. You've mentioned one, which are the headline figures, which are the ones that usually, you know, gain that kind of um, attention that, you know, people say, you know, that, as you mentioned, the, the 51 billion versus below 2 billion in the UK. But there are many other elements to, within that. So number one will be the sources of the financing. Um, you know, the the U the US doesn't only or the UK also doesn't only have venture capital as a source of financing. But there's then a lot of um, financing that, for example, will come over the um, listed markets, for example. Um, but and there, you know, we don't have a Nasdaq in the UK. Unfortunately, we don't have anything similar, which 
while a lot of VCs may see that as a, a as a as a, a route towards an exit of an investment, it is actually uh, uh, just a um, I say just it's a it's a way of 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 gaining further investment into these latest generally later stage companies. Mm-hmm. Um, there are also other models. Um, um, for example, if you think about venture debt or um, product financing or royalty financing, again that's a model that's very active in the US, but almost non-existent here. And there could be a, you know, a connection between the stage of development of, a, of more of the U.S. companies. They're much more developed and therefore able to take up those kinds of financing, which we're just not far enough developed in the U.K. for those to become, I wouldn't say a core part, but a larger part or at least a part of, of the financing um, environment that then would be available to life sciences companies as they go through their life's journey. Um, so, you know, I, and again, I touched it again on my previous answer that, you know, while while we are in a position now that's probably better than it was five years ago when BPC first started, uh, we're still not back at that stage of, you know, the number of investors, as I mentioned uh, previously, to to be able to sustain a larger life sciences uh, sector in the UK. Uh, and, and that's where we are trying to help the sector to get towards you know we can't do it all on our own um we have our funds program to try and increase the number of available managers out there so that there are enough doors for the life sciences companies to knock on when they're looking to to raise um their next financing round and then of course we do have our own direct program where we can help to round out particularly those later stage um fundraisings so that they do happen at an amount that is actually sensible for the company and allows the company to to reach the the next genuine milestone rather than the company just raising a round, round at a certain size because that's what they could raise and then finding it doesn't quite get them to the next step. So those are, you know, some of the areas that, you know, I think are a little bit different. The, the US is also has always um, been much more commercially minded than the UK has in the past. But I think we're catching up quickly. Um, but, you know, I think those are some of the elements that are probably part of the mix of the reasons why there is a funding gap, um, depending on, on on how you want to necessarily define that gap. Thank you for that. Yes. So can, can, are you able to tell me a bit more about what BPC is doing? Tell me more about its funds. Like um, I've got mention of your future fund for Breakthrough and yeah. other stuff like that, little Okay, so so we've touched on two of the three, but just for completeness, I'll go back over the the, the more. So there's yeah. the, the the core program, which was the initial program that that BPC yeah. was set up with after the the uh, British after the patient capital review. BPC was was set up with a with that core program to invest across different technology areas. Um, and as I mentioned, there's a there is a a commitment to invest a certain amount within the within the life sciences within that core program. The second layer that then came after was LSIP, as we've just touched on, which mm-hmm. was an expansion into the into more growth or scale-up end of the of the uh, um, ecosystem, where we we see an almost absence within the UK of those kind of scale-up funds or crossover funds or what, whatever we want to call them. And so the, that program is, as I mentioned, is more of a market shaping program to try and kickstart a, a presence of those kind of funds within the UK, um, and 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 then again, hopefully. A number of them so that you know there isn't just one that people can go and say i've got a growth stage company can you invest in it because they will only be doing two or three a year uh, and that you know there's much more uh need for that in the uk market then we've got future fund breakthrough now that is a direct investment program uh, again it's targeted at the growth stages of uk companies 
it again has a has two different has different technology areas that it invests in although i think about half of it is actually life sciences and that that life sciences team has been extremely active over the past few years um and has been investing a lot of money into these later larger rounds that life sciences companies in the uk are raising so they have a criteria whereby the round has to be uh, over 30 million there are lots of other criteria which uh, are available on the website to see what what is needed and again that's to like i say it's not to take away i wouldn't say responsibility not to take away the onus of of the of the private markets to start raising those rounds but it's to it's to come along in a, in a, as i mentioned in a state where if the company is is looking to raise 30 35 40 million which in the uk is seen as a large round in the us is seen as mm, middling if 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 that um, um and it's to make sure as i mentioned that to, that that company can raise a sufficient amount of capital to develop their products their platform their programs whatever they have internally to a point where they then increase in value so that they can either uh, look to you know, have a have some deals with uh, other companies, or as a springboard onto even bigger and better things, and depending on what the program, what the company is, and what their potential direction is. And so, it's it's to make sure that that comes to fruition in the right way for the company. And that's BPC's role in that is 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 basically to make sure that those rounds happen in of a sufficient size to to support the the life company. So you can think of those two. So we've got the core programs and LSIP, the funds programs on one side, which is acting at the level of the, the fund managers, which then obviously trickles down through those fund managers into the life sciences companies with their investments into the UK in, in those companies. And then at that same level, we can act alongside those those companies with future fund breakthrough in the growth phase. So I, I would see future fund breakthrough, you know, as comparative to the to the LSIP program in that growth phase that that's the they're both targeting that 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 phase and one thing I did forget to mention is that the core program also has a co-investment program um, whereby mm -hmm. we can co-invest alongside fund managers that we have invested in into their funds with as well so we do have a level of ability to join rounds in earlier stages of the life sciences companies as well Okay, so those investments that are being made, if we turn to sort of trends in the UK life sciences of late, what are the bright spots in innovation right now? Oof, that's a very difficult question to answer because if you ask me in a week's time, it might be very different. Um, so I, th I think there are some overlying trends that have been around for a while. Obviously, the one everybody mentions at the moment is AI, um, but AI has been around for at least a decade that I can remember and is is one of those areas that has always struggled to de to deliver the the promise and I'm sure someday it's going to get there um but it's it's one of the, the those areas that people get very excited about and then and then it kind of fades away and then comes back again but I think one of the one of the main things that has always been there I would say as an overlying trend um over the last 10 years or so is, is the ever marching move towards personalized medicine obviously not down to the absolute personal level, but it's uh, around making sure that the treatments are targeted at the right patients, patients where they know it's going to work rather than the approach before as well. You have this disease, here's a treatment that, you know, could work in 60% of the, the cases. Let's see if you're one of the 60% or not. So much more personalized approach to that. So you have fewer side effects, more effective treatments, uh, and the patient recovers, obviously, um, hopefully, uh, much, much, much more quickly and, 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 and to a greater degree. One of the other trends, which is there kind of in a counterbalance to that, because obviously the more personalized 
the treatments become, the more expensive they can get. Uh, so obviously the other trend that's out there that's um, being pushed by the other end, not, not the innovative companies, um, but by the payers at the end of the day, whether that be the NHS in the UK or government directly or the, the insurances in the US or other insurance-based um, systems like, like Germany, for example, is that there's a downward pressure on, on, on prices. So those are probably trends that have been around for a while and probably not going to change in the near future. Then there are other technological areas which are also, you know, sometimes uh, are grabbing all the headlines and then go quiet for a while and then come back and grab the headlines again. So there's cell and gene therapy, for example. There are areas, for example, um, one of the things I can remember, again, from my background, I was never involved in the human genome mapping project. But while I was in Cambridge, a lot of my friends were. Um, and it took many, many years to map the genome of one one person or of the equivalent of one person. Um, these days, we can do that within a day. Mm -hmm. So what we're finding is that there's a, an overabundance of data. And I think mm -hmm. sometimes we've struggled to know exactly what to do with that data, how to best extract value from that data and improve you know, the treatment regimens that we have out there from that, 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 that abundance of data that we have. So I think that's also going to be one of the things that is going to be with us for a little while, at least until we, until we, uh, we manage to, to crack that nut and then can start delving into that data to, to find more things. And then probably a last one I would mention is a little bit more prosaic, maybe not as, um, as interesting or, for want of a better word, sexy as these high, you know, highly <laughs> advanced sciences. But one of the things we learned from COVID was that we, we overstretched our supply lines, for want of a better phrase. And so there's been a lot of uh, re-onshoring of, of drug production, of, of CMC, of, of, of CROs and, and all of these kind of areas. Uh, obviously started maybe for the wrong reasons before COVID, but definitely after COVID, people have really studied their, their supply chains to make sure that there's one redundancy and, and not so much distance within them. And so that has seen a reverse of a move of all of the kind of what's considered, you know, low margin kind of work to the to India or China, for example, and to having it coming back towards at least Europe, if not into the UK as well. So that, that's another trend which is has seen an increase in uh, the, uh, at least a small one, those kind of uh, services that, that are necessary to, to get the products once they are out in the market into the patient's arms. Okay, so if we focus on those, historically in your time in your career now, has there been one particular trend that's really got you excited during that time that now is sort of commonplace and mainstay? Um, put you on the spot. I'm sorry. <laughs> you have put me on the spot. I wasn't. I wasn't ready for that question. It's a difficult one to answer as well because I am a scientist at heart still, even after not being in science for oof, over 20 years. Well, I would argue I still have been, um, just a little okay. bit, but a bit more by proxy rather than actually in the lab with a white lab coat on. Uh, and in fact, I would argue I've probably seen more since I left the lab than I would have done if I'd ever stayed in it because I have a much more high-level view of everything that's going on. Has there been something, I mean, there aren't, I mean, a lot of the, the developments that I've seen are still, may have been around what's considered a long time in the life of a person, but not necessarily a long time in the life of medicine. Let's put it that mm -hmm. way. Um, so things do take time to, to uh, establish themselves. But if I go right back to, you know, is there something that wasn't around when I was a, a, a young scientist or at university that, you know, well, you know, all of the monoclonal antibody treatments that we 
we have at the moment. They just weren't around when I when I was growing up. <laughs> now I really do sound like a grandfather. Yeah. Um, but uh, but but you know they're very commonplace these days. And in fact, in some places they're a little bit looked down upon because they're so commonplace. But they, they you know they were able to um, to establish a lot of treatments for diseases that we struggle to treat and we still struggle to treat some of them now and they, you know we need to improve and keep in, keep moving forward but you know they've they, that's that's a technology that has become much more established than it was when i was starting out okay so if we take monoclonal antibody treatments if we take the need to organize and understand this abundance of data that we've got and think about the future what is coming in the next 10 or 20 years in your opinion right now when it comes to what will be the hot thing to invest in because it has the most potential? I tend not to look at the market in that style. Um, And I think there's too much of a scientist in me because I have no idea what's going to be around in 15 years is is the honest answer. And if anybody tells me honesty is good. But if any, and if anybody was to tell me they do know what's going to be around in 15 years, I'll say, well, at best, it's a guess. And I'm too much of a scientist to guess. Uh, I, I like data, unfortunately. But what what I would say on on that one is is you know where you need to look at what kind of investments are going to be investments that have the highest chances of making it to a good product. You know, so that you're, you're, I mean, at the one side, everybody who's in a company uh, thinks about profitability and, the, and, the, and those kind of things. But at the end of the day, I went into life sciences because I'm more interested in the altruistic side to a degree that, uh, you know, I like the idea that what I'm doing as a job has some benefit for, for the planet and will still have a benefit once I'm not here anymore. It's not purely altruistic because we are all getting older and and at some stage in life we will probably all need some of some of these treatments so there is a there is a slightly selfish angle in there as well but it, it, mm-hmm. it's that it's it's more about the impact of of what we do in this sector that has that attracted me straight away from 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 school through university and I've never been in anything else to to be in here so where where I would tend to think is is not to think about the technology that could potentially be the next new hot thing because technologies do come and go. But thinking about where's the unmet medical need, where is their treatment, where where is it best for me to put my time and effort that can have the the greatest impact? And if you're able to do that and you're able to come up with a solution that is able to address those problems, then you will also take care of the commercial side of the business as well. And so for me, I'm much more driven by thinking you know, I don't need to be the 14th treatment for, for um, let, let me think of something here, um, colon cancer, you know, for example, maybe a bad example because it's not very well treated at the moment. But, you know, the 14th monoclonal antibody treatment for, for colon cancer, but rather thinking about there's, there's, there's a problem that's existing in the population or the market, whichever phrase you want to use. Uh, and I've got a way of, of, of addressing that problem and then and then developing that solution forwards into a product which can then be something that, that that can treat those patients and i think that's much more for me at least the best way to try and figure out which would be the the right kind of treatment so for example everybody got ex- e- e- excited by cell and gene therapy when it first came out like car t and and um, technologies like that rightly so very interesting technology and can probably do a lot, but it's going to be a long time before that becomes a mainstream treatment for for, mm-hmm. for diseases and is able to have a, a real impact on what's what's out there. So it doesn't mean that it shouldn't be done, um, but there are, I, I would just come from the 
the the market need or, or the patient need side of the equation rather than thinking which of the technologies are, are, are going to be the ones that, that crack those. Thank you, Mark. So addressing the unmet medical need, that's something to invest in. Thank you for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And so that concludes another episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. You can find out more information about this episode, including a download link and information about previous installments of the series at pharmaforum.com forward slash podcasts. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher and Podbean, where you can find and subscribe by searching for Pharma Forum. Of course, don't forget to visit our website itself, where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins, and follow us on Twitter, or X nowadays, at at PharmaForum. That's all for now. Thank you for listening.